Today is Reformation Sunday. Not sure if you're aware of that. We talked last week about how we don't really acknowledge Ascension Sunday very much, but we're going to actually acknowledge Reformation Sunday. I don't know what to do with that. Um, we're going to acknowledge the work of uh, the reformers in church history, but we tend to forget about Jesus ascending to the right hand of God the Father. So I don't know. Um, I need to think about that more. Today is Reformation Sunday. If you open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, we are going to work from the book of Romans. And I also want to encourage you as you go to the site to follow along with this interview that we did with Ryan uh, to take note, if you haven't seen it already, of some blog posts that our own Shelby Murphy has been writing about uh, the Reformation. And in particular, some of the truths and the glories of the Reformation known as the five solas of the Reformation. He's been writing a post uh, every other day about those. And I would encourage you to go read them. Uh, They're fantastic. They are excellent. Um, And I also want to say we are not abandoning our series on the Nicene Creed this morning, we're just going to get to the part for this week by going through the book of Romans, if that's all right. Uh, The book of Romans was a treasure to the Reformers, uh, and so in honor of Reformation Sunday, we are going to use it to get where we're going. But before we start in Romans, I will remind you of where we have been in the Creed, where we are going, um, and then we're just going to have fun with the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, This is what we've seen so far in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And where we are going to get to this week in the book of Romans is this. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let me pray for us, and then we are going to enjoy the book of Romans. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come together to celebrate uh, your greatness and your glory. And I ask this morning, Father, that you would by your Holy Spirit, help us to surrender our souls and surrender our hearts, surrender our minds, surrender our wills to the truth of your word. May we be a people who, who wants to surrender ourselves to the truths of your, of your word and your declaration about who you are. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for our joy, but ultimately for your great glory. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1 The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church that is in Rome, and he is on his way. He wants to get to Rome to set up an operation for his worldwide mission. He wants to reach the ends of the earth. He wants to get to to Spain, and he wants to get there to preach the gospel. And he wants to do his work of reaching the ends of the earth from Rome. So he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he's encouraging them in the gospel, but he begins to explain the gospel that he treasures so greatly. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read. We're going to read, and then I'm going to talk a little bit. And we're going to read, and I'm going to talk a little bit. And we're going to get to this last section of the creed. So Romans 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. An astounding statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Those of you who are followers of Christ, you would call yourself Christians. Can you say with the Apostle Paul that in all places and at all times and in all circumstances and in all situations, you are not ashamed of the gospel? You're not ashamed of the declaration of the gospel that says that nothing you can do, there's no way that you can earn before God any favor That there's nothing that you can do, no matter how well you keep whatever rules you think you need to keep, there's nothing that you can do that can earn the forgiveness and the redemption that comes from God. In all places and in all times, are you confident and not ashamed of the grace that's declared in the gospel? Are you not ashamed of the gospel and its declaration that your sin is so heinous before a holy God, that your sin is so great before a holy God that that it necessitated the sacrifice of his only son to bring about the forgiveness that you so now enjoy? Are you ashamed of what the gospel says about the wickedness in your own heart? The Apostle Paul says, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Any time, any circumstance, any situation, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Why, Paul? For it's the power of God for salvation 
The gospel is not a philosophy or an ideology. It is in itself a power. Paul doesn't say that the gospel talks about a power. He doesn't say that it brings a power. He doesn't say that it presents a power. He says that the gospel itself is a power. As I was reading this week, I found a, a metaphor, and, and it's an old pastoral habit. You know, we, we read something somewhere, and we say that this person said this at one time, and the next time you say it, you say, well, I heard it said one time, and the next time you say it, you say, well, I was thinking and praying this week, and I thought of something, and over time, you forget who said what. And I read this this week, and they didn't quote where it came from, but I can guarantee they didn't come up with it. But they said this, that the gospel was much like a pepper. You've ever gardened. You know that when you go and you grab a pepper off the vine, it's cold to the touch. That to your immediate sense, it's, it's cold. But when you bite into it, when you crush a pepper between your teeth, you begin to experience the sensation of burning fire. He went on to say that in the same way, the gospel can appear at first like an interesting theory or philosophy. But if you take it in personally, you begin to taste the full extent of its power. Its power for what? Salvation. The gospel in all of its power has the capacity to transform minds, to transform souls, to transform lives, to transform hearts, to transform worldviews, to transform perspectives. But most of all, the gospel is powerful because it does what no other power can do. It can save us from our sin. It can reconcile us to God. And it can guarantee us a place in his presence for all of eternity. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of what it says about me. I'm not ashamed of what it says about God. For it alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And I'm not ashamed in any time, place, circumstance, or situation that the gospel declares that only those who believe on the person and work of Jesus will be saved and rescued from their sin and the eternal consequences of their sin. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says this righteousness of God, the the righteousness of God in this sense would mean the character of God, the the, the perfectly holy and, and right character of God, that in God himself you can find no fault with God, you can put no blame on God. And Paul is saying that there is a righteousness of God A righteousness that comes from God. A holiness. A righteousness without blame that comes from God and can be received by us. This is the essence that the reformers so treasured in the message of the gospel. There is a righteousness that comes from God that you and I can receive. And this is where one aspect of the gospel, we we tend to underemphasize and we tend to miss sometimes in our understanding of the gospel. And and we can be so satisfied to hear of the message of the gospel, to hear of the person and the work of, of Jesus. And we'll unpack that in just a minute. And we can be so thankful, as we rightly should, that our for sins are forgiven, that they are, they are as far from God as the east is from the west, that he forgets our sin and remembers them no more. And we can treasure that and we can hold tight to that so dearly as we should. But we can forget that he doesn't simply just forgive our sins. In the gospel that Paul was so excited about, that the reformers were so excited about, that we should be so excited about and treasure so deeply, God says there is a righteousness, a right standing, a justice, a justification that is given to us that says you're not just forgiven, but you know what? You're not guilty. You're not guilty. You stand before God not just forgiven, but with a completely clean slate. And that comes through faith. This is what Paul is talking about. There's a reason, verse 18. There's a reason that we need to treasure this. We need to treasure this declaration of our right standing before God through faith in Jesus. Let me just say this. I don't want to go on too fast. This this truth is, is actually meant to be the truth that we're to wake up every single day and hold tight to and to encourage ourselves with until we sense that burning and that treasuring and that joy and that confidence within our own soul. This is the truth of the gospel that we receive by faith, that we remind ourselves in faith on a daily basis that declares to us our right standing before God. Every single day we are to remind ourselves that because of the person and work of Jesus, 
We are not just forgiven from our sins before God, but we are made right before God. That we stand justified before God. And if we can begin to treasure this and begin to preach this to ourselves on a daily basis, you want to know what you need to do when you need to leave here? You need to remember what you've been saved from and how you've been saved. You need to hold fast by faith to the truth that the righteousness that has come from God can be received by faith. This is the daily life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul is so over the moon about this thing. Here's why, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All of Paul's confidence and joy and passion for the gospel rests upon the assumption that apart from the gospel, all men and women, all of humanity are under the wrath of God. They're under the just wrath of God for their sin. And when it comes to being under the just wrath of God, Paul's going to go on to say that we're without excuse, that it's totally just that this is our circumstance. Well, he says, verse 19, for, who can be, for what can be known about, God's, for about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, look what it says, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul's saying is that this means that by looking around at the world, we should be able to perceive God's divine nature, that God exists and that he should be worshipped. And we should be able to look at the world around us and recognize God's eternal power, that someone brought all of this into being, and that God is great and he is glorious and he is worthy of respect. And whoever created this thing, that God must be a being of unimaginable And this is what Paul's saying, but instead we misplace the worship and the service that's rightly due to God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And this is what happened. We worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Being created by God, being created in the image of God, you and I were hardwired for worship. We talk about this all the time. And all of creation being then created by God possesses in itself some element or measure of glory so that we can find them admirable, that we can find them admirable, so that we can look to the created order and see glimpses and see traces of God's greatness and God's glory. And the problem comes when you and I, who are hardwired to worship, hardwired to make much of the glory of God, we take the worship and the glory that's rightly due to God and we put it on these created things. We take good things and make them main things. And when we take good things and make them main things in our lives, they become very bad and destructive things. And the worship that is due to God alone for who he is and what he's done, that we were hardwired by God to give him, we then place on created things. And we distort them. Being created in the image of God, being created by God for worship, we were always worshiping something. We talk about this around here a lot. Whatever it is that we worship, whatever it is we place our our trust in, whatever we give that ultimate admiration to, we will eventually serve. We will look to these things to, to provide for us a meaning and a purpose that only God himself can provide for us. Verse 26, Paul's going to keep going. This is our state. Our desires have become distorted. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God simply turns us over to what it is we want the most. He simply allows us to have whatever it is we think the objects that we're worshiping can give us. For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And look what happens when we begin to, to misplace our worship. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, mal- maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to the parents for all of those in here. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but look at this, they give approval to those who practice them. So what Paul has, has said so far, chapter 1, is that despite the fact that God has given us clear evidences of his power and of his nature, we've refused to acknowledge his reality. And we've refused to acknowledge his right to be worshipped, though we owe him our very life. And instead, you and I, who are hardwired by God to worship, we find other things besides him to worship and ultimately serve. Other things become our chief priority, our chief object of affection. Things that we must have that we try to then construct and build our life around and find meaning and purpose out of. And this false worship, this worship of idols, Paul will go on to say, it actually becomes the undoing of our life. It actually produces the unraveling of our life. And all of this, Paul said, is part of God's wrath of which we need rescue from. But he's going to keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every single one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now Paul's turning to his more religious hearers. He's turning to the church crowd and he's saying, listen, righteousness police, so quick to point out the moral failures of of others, you're pointing out the very same thing that you yourself do. And in doing that, in pointing out the failures of others, and pointing out the very same things that you do, you're condemning yourself. You're pointing out what not be done, what not what ought not be done while you are doing it yourself. And Paul's not talking here about correcting one another in love and in grace. He's not talking about speaking the truth to one another in love, pointing out where we're failing to keep in step with the gospel and where we're failing to believe the gospel and instead doing something else. He's not talking about loving one another honestly. He's talking about a disposition of heart that speaks to other people out of, out of a position and an arrogance that doesn't feel like it deserves to be spoken that way too. It's talking about a position of pointing out the failures of others, seeking in some sense the failure of others, delighting in the failure of others while all along thinking you're too good for that kind of correction yourself. He's talking about the state of most Christians. He's talking about the state of most Christians. You believe that you have the right to judge other people, but you yourself are not worthy of judgment. This is who Paul's talking to. Verse 4. Look back to verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think, do you think that you're not worthy of that same judgment? Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Have you not realized that you're still here? (laughs) You're still breathing. You do the very things that you point out in others while believing you don't deserve to be judged for them yourself. Have you not realized that you're still breathing? The fact that you're breathing is God's kindness. In God's kindness, it's showing, himself, it's showing itself in his patience. And that you're not right now getting what you justly deserve for your sin. Have you not seen that God's kindness has been poured out on you, that you woke up this morning, that you took a breath, that you walked downstairs, that you hugged the people that you loved, 
Have you not seen that this is nothing but the kindness of God bearing itself out in patience and that you're not getting what you justly deserve? He never, he never, he never, Paul says, judges you as quickly as he has the right to. Instead, he shows kindness. And his kindness is born out in his patience. And his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, the longer that we receive the patience of God, the longer that the kindness of God is poured out onto us in patience, and we refuse to repent of our sin, Paul's saying we're storing up for ourselves in the end wrath. And this word is like is an image. Paul's using a word picture. If you've ever seen a river that's been dammed up, or if you've ever gone and seen a river that's been dammed up by beavers, the more and more logs they put on it, and the higher and higher the wall actually gets, the more and more water gets stored up. And the longer the dam stays, the deeper the water gets, and the higher the water gets, so that one day when that thing finally comes apart, the water that rushes through that thing can be catastrophic. And this is what Paul's saying that we're doing in our unrepentance. Failing to recognize God for who he is. Failing to give him the worship that he alone deserves. Instead, thinking ourselves right to judge others for the very same things that we do. Hardening our heart all the way down the road. Failing to wake up every day and realize the very breath we take is the kindness of God being poured out on us in patience. Meant to draw us to God in repentance. And for ourselves and for our hardness of heart, we're storing up wrath Wrath that will come on the day of judgment. And this gets us to where we are in our creed. The longest creedal introduction we've had yet, huh? Jesus will come again, the creed says, in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, talking about himself, that the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him to come. Now, I've got to say this, because whenever we talk about the coming of Christ, and not even the judgment of Christ that's to come, but just the coming of Christ, things just get really fruity in the church. I mean, some of you have got some fruity ideas about when Jesus is going to come. So we're just going to say this at the very beginning. He says he's going to come, and he makes it really clear to us how we're supposed to understand that, all right? So we're just going to get this out of the way real quick before we unpack it. Matthew 24, 44, he's going to come in an hour you don't expect him to. All right? So you, lots of people like to guess. If you followed anything on the news, some of them have made national press. Some reason, generation after generation, Harold Camping still manages to make national news. But they've all been wrong. He has not come back yet. Matthew 25, 13, Jesus says this about his coming. You will not know the hour or the day. I don't know what part of Matthew 25, 13 people fail to actually grasp. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. We do not know when he's going to return. I, I don't know. Nobody knows. Only he knows, okay? So when's he going to return? He knows. The day and the hour, you don't know, okay? So don't let anybody tell you that they know. And if they say they know, take them here and ask them what part of this they feel themselves exempt from, all right? When's he going to come? I don't know. He knows. When he comes, what's he going to do? This is, what, this is what we can talk about. He will come again in glory, the creed says, to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus returns in glory, he returns to judge. We don't know when, but we do know what he's going to do. He will judge everyone who has ever lived, the living and the dead. Revelation chapter 20, let me just read you something. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. It's the Apostle John and his series of visions that he was given. Revelation 20, verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and, on who, and, on him, and him who was seated on it. He's talking about Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, 
standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So here's the thing. The truth is, I, I don't know your life. I don't know your deeds. I don't know your thoughts. I cannot discern the intentions and the motivations of your heart. But Jesus does. He knows and he sees all. And Jesus, as we have talked in weeks past, as we've been going through the creed, is God and he is without sin and he is altogether good and he is the one, the only one, who is fit to judge all of mankind. And when he returns, this is what he is going to do. He is going to judge everyone. And when he returns, final, righteous, perfect, and complete justice will be delivered. We can get this internally. I mean, we all love justice. We love to hear stories of justice. We love to see where the innocent are vindicated and the guilty are rightly punished. All of us, whether you admit it or not, and every time I mention these things, it always gets really quiet, like you don't want to actually admit it, but all of us really like to watch those things, like Dateline, when they do those sting investigations, when they show up at houses and they trick all of those child molesters to come to the house thinking there's a child there and they catch them. We all love to see the guilty caught and the guilty punished. We all love to, to read and to hear the stories of the innocent who have been wrongly accused are finally vindicated and set free. I mean, ESPN's 2011 Man of Courage Award, do you know who it went to? Do you know who they dedicated half of the ceremony to and made a video about? It's a former boxer who had been wrongly accused of murder and had spent over 20 years in prison, never quit fighting. And out of a random turn, and some DNA that finally turned up. He was acquitted, and he was vindicated, and he was set free. And Dewey Bozzella received the 2011 Man of Courage Award. We all love stories of justice. We're hardwired for stories of justice. We're hardwired to pursue justice for ourselves and for others. But here's the thing. In this world, we don't catch all the bad guys. Not all the guilty get punished. And you can ask Rick and Nancy Collins. In prisons, there are lots of innocent people probably locked up that will not get vindicated in this lifetime. That's the world that we live in. But on that day when Jesus returns, he will execute perfect and holy judgment about who we are, every single one of our thoughts, every single one of our motives, every single one of our words, every single one of our deeds. It's coming. I promise you this, it is coming. It is as certain as his life on earth, his death in our place, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, his reign and his ascension. It's as certain as Jesus himself. It is coming. There is a day of accurate and complete justice that will actually occur. And when Jesus returns to execute justice, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, the judgment for Christians and those who are not followers of Christ will actually be different. But there will be judgment for both. Christians and those who are not followers of Christ will be judged. But the judgment will be different. For those who are not followers of Christ, you will face a righteous and holy justice. You will face Jesus eye to eye. And he will judge you accurately completely and perfectly according to your thoughts, words, deeds, and motives. Romans chapter 3. Keep reading. Romans 3. Jump over to verse 5. Because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew first and also the Greek. So according to your unrepentant heart, your hard heart, you will be sentenced by Jesus to an eternity apart from God in hell. 
And I have no problem talking about that. Jesus talked about it more than I'll ever talk about it. Jesus had no problem talking about it because it's reality. According to your hard and unrepentant heart, you will be sentenced by Jesus to an eternity apart from him in hell. A literal, conscious, eternal torment. Not a place where Satan rules, a place where Jesus executes judgment even over Satan's and demons himself for all of eternity. This is what awaits. Revelation 14, listen to this, verse 6. John again. I love this. He said, listen, he said, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. Listen to what he said. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to everyone who dwells on the earth, to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. And he said with a loud voice, listen to this eternal gospel that he has to proclaim. Fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Down to verse 10. He's talking now about those who are unrepentant. He, the unrepentant, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night night. This is what the judgment, the righteous judgment of Jesus looks like for those who are not followers of Christ. But the judgment for the followers of Christ, they will be judged. It'll be different. Every single last one of us, every one of us will have to face Jesus in the end. The difference is whether or not we'll face him as a friend or as an enemy, as a friend or as a foe. And I want to say this before we get into how those who are followers of Christ will face judgment by Jesus in the end. I want to say this. The difference in the judgment is not because Christians are better people. It's not because we're better people. One of the beauties of the Reformation and the return from the Reformation to the Scriptures and to an understanding of the Gospel is that it declares that no one, not one of us, none of us, deserve the forgiveness that we get from God. The forgiveness and the restoration and the redemption that any of us taste and receive from God solely comes from God as an act of His grace. There's no reason in in myself or in anyone here who calls himself a Christian, there's nothing in you that makes God love you or forgive you. There's nothing in yourself Left to yourself, left to myself, forget you, I'll talk about me. Left to myself, I am a wretched man. I am a wretched man. My thoughts, my words, my deeds, the motives of my heart can be so dark and be so twisted at times that if I'm really honest with you, it scares myself when I see them. It scares, it scares me when I even recognize them. And the reformers brought light back onto the truths of the scriptures and the truths of the gospels and proclaimed that the forgiveness of sin comes and is owed to nothing but the sheer grace of God. And so, if you're not a follower of Christ, I really want you to hear me this morning. The scriptures are not saying that I am any better than you. That Christians are any better than you. This is part of the message that has been so distorted, so twisted, and used to damage so many people's lives and hearts and understanding of who God is. The judgment that Christians receive in the end when Jesus returns is different from the judgment non-Christians receive, but it's not because in ourselves we're any better than you. That's not what it's saying. Listen to what it's saying. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3, last half of verse 10 says this. No one is righteous. No, not one. Listen, no one. Who's not included in no one? No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 21. We read it this morning. But, but now... The righteousness of God, remember, talked about it earlier, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And Paul's saying people have always tried to use the law of God as a way to make themselves right in God's eyes. But no one seeks God. No one left to themselves gives God the worship and the honor and the glory that he alone deserves. Instead, they take his law and they try to use it as a way to earn for themselves what he can only freely give. And Paul is saying that the righteousness of God, it's been made known. It's been made known. It's been manifest to us apart from the law, apart from doing anything to try to earn it. His righteousness His justice, his justification, the declaration that you're not only forgiven, you're not only forgiven, but you are right before God has been made known through faith in the person and work of Jesus. For there is no distinction, Paul said. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified. All are not just forgiven, but all are made right. All are not just forgiven, but all stand before God with the declaration of justified, perfect, right before God by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The grace of God for the forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we should have died. And when we place our faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ, listen to me, this is what makes all the difference in how you stand before Jesus in the end and the judgment that you receive. When you place your faith on the man Jesus Christ, His life lived in your place. His death died in your place. Jesus' vindication of him, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. When you place your faith on the man, Jesus, and his work, you do not need to fear standing before him in the end, being punished and being set apart from him in eternity in hell. In a very real way, you were judged on the cross, in the person and work of Jesus. He suffered on the cross, exhausted the righteous and holy wrath of God for your sin in your place, and he suffered not only the wrath of God, but death in your place. And when you place your faith on his life, death, and resurrection in your place, You no longer have to fear standing before him as an enemy in the end. You no longer have to fear standing before him as an enemy in the end because the righteousness of God, not just the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God, the blamelessness of God has been imparted to you. And your life, Paul says, is now hidden in Christ. And when God sees you, he sees his son. This was the glory of the gospel that Paul treasured so deeply and that the reformers brought back to light. Why, Paul goes on to say, why did he do this? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On the cross, the justice of God was demonstrated in his just and righteous demand for the punishment of sin. And on the cross, his love was demonstrated in that he desires our justification. In the, on the cross, the beauty and the 
glory of God was demonstrated. Because of this, God is just and he can justify. Because he punished Jesus in our place. And because of that, he can forgive us freely. This is the beauty of the gospel. And Paul says, because of this, what becomes of our boasting? (laughs) If this is the truth about how the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of God is given to us, how we can stand before God when we face Jesus, when he returns, how we can stand before him with confidence that we will not be set apart from him for eternity in hell. This is how we can have that confidence. What then comes of your boasting? What then comes of the pride that you have and how good you really are and how much you really know or whatever it is you tend to put your hope and your pride in? He said, it's, it's for naught. Righteousness, forgiveness, it's all grace. It's all grace to every single last one of us. Let me end this way. The Heidelberg Catechism is a great teaching tool produced by the Reformers. It was written in a similar manner as the Nicene Creed as an effort to teach believers the truths of the faith, but then encourage them in how to apply them to their lives. And it was done in a question and answer format. And this is what it says about this. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? I mean, how is this truth meant to actually comfort you? That one day Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. How are you supposed to get comfort from that? This is what it says. In all of my distress and trouble and persecution, I I turn my eyes to the heavens and I confidently await as, as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All of his enemies and all of my enemies, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me, but me and those he has chosen, he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. So if you're a follower of Christ in here, though you, in and of yourself, you are, <laughs> you are as guilty as sin. You know that, I don't know if you ever use that phrase. I do all the time. You're as guilty as sin. You do not actually have to fear standing eye to eye, face to face with the resurrected Jesus in the end. Kevin DeYoung, another pastor, he said this. He said, when you stand before the Holy Son of God at the end of the age and all of your deeds and all of your thoughts are laid bare for the world to see, all of your petty jealousies, all of your lustful glances, all of your murderous thoughts, all of your self-absorbed days, there will still be nothing to fear. There is no chance that Christ will look you up and down and cry out, curse this one. Why? Because he himself already became the curse for us. We can no more be condemned at the throne of God's judgment than God can condemn himself a second time. This is the comfort that a Christian has at the coming judgment of Christ to judge the living and the dead. What I want you to see when you read this creed and when you think about all these things that we've walked through taken together, what I want you to see is that when Jesus comes, he is coming as a king to rule, to reign, to execute judgment and to establish his righteousness and his kingdom forever. This is how we'll end. This is what he said. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. In that day when he comes, he will come as a king, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what will that kingdom be like? No longer will there be anything cursed. This is Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his people will will worship him. No longer will anything be cursed. No longer will the stain and the destruction of sin have its way on anything. No longer will anything be cursed. Revelation 21.4, he said, in this kingdom, he'll wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. I don't know what you cry about. I don't know what makes you cry. But I hope you begin to treasure the image 
of the reigning and ruling and the resurrected King Jesus coming himself to wipe the tears from your eyes. I mean, I, I don't know what you cry about, but in this time, we won't need to cry anymore because there will be no sickness, there will be no evil, there will be no death, there will be no injustice, there will be no curse. Nothing, he said, will be cursed anymore. There won't be anything to cry about. He said, in that time, all, death will be no more. I don't know the last time you buried someone that you knew or someone that you loved. But I can tell you personally, not just as a dad who's buried a son, but as a pastor who does funerals, I look forward to the day when there is no hospital visit. No cancer, no mortuaries, no funerals. In this day, death will be no more because nobody will even be sick. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Former things have passed away. Some of you, I, I, I can't put myself there. Some of you, you know what it's like to feel pain, pain that I'm not even aware of. For some of you, it's physical. You know what it's like to feel chronic pain. Sin has affected every part of our being, including our body. When Jesus returns, and as the king establishes his kingdom forever, there will be no more pain, no more sickness. Whatever it is you're dealing with, your body will be made perfect. Your body will be raised from the dead just as his was. And you will stand in his presence for all of eternity with a glorified body. No more curse, no more sin, no more pain, no more cancer, no more broken kidneys, no more infertility, no more miscarriages, no more death, no more relational pain. The thing is, if we're really honest, everybody wants this. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, everybody wants this. And what you're actually wanting when you taste this and desire this, you're, you're wanting Jesus. And you don't even know it. This is what we have to look forward to as a follower of Christ. I love it. Revelation 21, verse 5. He follows that picture of the kingdom up and he says this. And he, talking about Jesus, he was seated on the throne. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. When Jesus returns, he returns as a king. And when he returns, he executes perfect and righteous and holy and complete justice and judgment upon the living and the dead. And he establishes his kingdom. And that kingdom has no sin, no sickness, no evil, no injustice, no death. Because he will take it all away. Because he, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his reign, has conquered it and defeated it. This is our king and the comfort that we have to look forward to. And so I'll say this as I close. I know I've probably gone too long. Let me say this. If you are not a follower of Christ, I'll just take this in however you can. If you are not a follower of Christ, this is as close as you will ever get to heaven. This right now is as close as you will ever get to heaven. This is your heaven. This is the best that it will ever be for you. And in the end, you will die. And you will stand face to face and eye to eye with the risen Jesus, the reigning Jesus. And he will execute perfect and complete and holy judgment on you. And you will be sentenced to an eternity apart from him in a literal conscience torment called hell. And I say this, I don't know how you've ever heard this before, and I hope you can trust me. I don't, you know, I don't even, probably don't even know me. I don't say this to be mean to you. I'm not trying to say this to be angry. I'm trying to use the best possible tone that I can. But I'll tell you this, it's true. I want something totally different for you. Jesus wants something totally different from you, for you. If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to hear this. This is as bad as it will ever get for you. Right now, this life, 
it is as bad as it will ever get for you. This is as close to hell as you will ever get. Your life on this earth, God knows how many days you have left and how many more breaths you have to take. In that time, in those days, with those breaths, it might actually get harsher. It might actually get more painful. It might actually get more difficult, but this is as bad as it will ever get. I assure you, according to the trustworthiness of God himself and his word, it will get better. When he returns and he establishes his kingdom, all the pain, all the injustice, all the evil, all the curse, it will be gone. Everything, he said, will be made new and will be made perfect. He said, you better write that down. For that is trustworthy and it's true. And so now as we wrap up, we do the same thing every single week. We like to give everybody a chance to respond to God's word. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes in silence, which is probably the most awkward time of your week. But it's a time for you to deal with Jesus and for Jesus to deal with you. A time for you to pray. A time for you to deal with him according to your conscience. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to tell you, you're going to have to deal with Jesus at some point. You can't escape dealing with Jesus. You will deal with him now in repentance and faith and face him eternally as a friend or you will harden your heart and ignore him now and run the risk of standing before him in eternity as an enemy. You can't avoid him. You can't avoid him. And so my plea for you is to come and to deal with him now, to deal with him in confession and repentance And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have about a minute and a half of silence, and I want you just to deal with Jesus wherever you are. As a follower of Christ, thank him. Find comfort in that he's going to return, and it's all going to be set right. If you're not a follower of Christ, deal with him. Deal with your heart. Deal with your conscience and repentance and confession. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll go. Father, thank you for for the hope that we have as your sons and daughters that this world is not as good as it will get. that as a Christian, as one who has placed our hope and our faith and our trust in you, that we have so much more to look forward to. Lord, help, help the hope of eternity and the urgency of eternity to begin to burn rightly in our hearts. Help the hope that we have of eternity with you in your kingdom. Let the taste of that eternal joy and that eternal praise begin to spark thankfulness and humility and passion in our hearts today. And Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, I would pray that for those who, who have lived with hearts hardened to you, who have never heard or have never even heard the message of the gospel or has never made sense, has never sounded sweet, that you would make, make the message of your forgiveness and the righteousness that comes from you through faith in Jesus sound like sweetness and wisdom, like sound like something that we've been so desperate for all of our lives. Make that, make that real to people's hearts this morning. We ask this, Lord, in your name's sake. Amen.